It's been a great day of worship here at Johnson Ferry, and now we enter into a time where we worship God by hearing from His Word and responding. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. As you turn in there, let me also echo the invitation to come this week, either to girls' night or to guys' night out. Those are designed not just for you to enjoy, but for you to prayerfully think about who do you need to bring with you? Who lives down the street from you? Who uh, do you work with? Who do you know that needs to find belonging in Jesus? Bring them with you. And then next Sunday night, I hope that you have in your calendars to be here 6 p.m., Next Sunday night, night of worship. These are some of my favorite nights of the year. Sometimes we've done those here in the AC, sometimes in the sanctuary. We're going to do this one in the sanctuary, but we're utilizing uh, our band and singers here from the AC. Some of y'all have never even been in the sanctuary before, but the hope is that we would sing in unison as a church, one church with one mission, with songs that we all know, love, and enjoy. It's not a concert. It's not there to cater to your preferences. It's a night to worship Jesus. I'm going to be leading us through some strategic times of prayer that night. It's a really critical, critical night, and I hope that you are planning to be there 6 p.m. next Sunday night. I picked up an interesting book this week called The Great De-Churching, the kind of book a pastor would order. This book talks largely from a sociological standpoint about why it is that so many people have stopped coming to church. Not just since COVID, but really over the last 25 to 40 years. And they said this, in the last 25 years from the studies they've done, 40 million Americans have stopped going to church. 40 million is more than all the people that started coming to church during the first Great Awakening, the second Great Awakening, and all the Billy Graham Crusades in America combined. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. But if someone is not regularly fellowshipping with the body of Christ, it often points to a problem. Jesus Christ was never enamored with crowds. We get enamored with crowds. We, we like big crowds. I like big crowds. Jesus was not infatuated with crowds, the size of churches, the amount of followers you have on whatever social media platform. Jesus is more concerned about you trusting him and obeying him. In the text we're going to look at today, Jesus is talking to a crowd. And he's going to give a harsh word. And he does it through a parable. If you have your copy of God's word in front of you, and if you don't have a Bible, we're going to have it on the screen, but I want to encourage you to be bringing your Bibles Look at Matthew 13, and let's just read the parable, verses 1 through 9, and then we'll listen to how Jesus explains it in a few minutes. But as soon as you get there, let's stand together, Matthew 13, 1 through 9. On that day, Jesus had gone out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, 
and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up immediately because they had no depth of soil. But after the sun rose, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. But others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty times as much. Then he said to the crowd, the one who has ears, let him hear. That's probably where we should start. Father, I don't know who's in this room. I don't know what they came in here with. I don't know where they stand with you, but you do. And I pray that we are a people who has ears to hear what you want to say to us today. God, speak to us through this word. And we'll pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is the beginning of a new series that we will be in throughout the fall, looking at several of the parables of Jesus. We were so creative that we entitled the series Parables. And we have a great resource for you. I saw most of you picked one up. If you didn't, when you're leaving today, get one. But this book is just a great resource, and I'm so proud of our team. We did this in-house. One of our former sent ones did the illustrations Our creative team, our communications team, along with our disciple-making team, put this great resource together. It gives you not only the parable and the scriptures, but a whole host of questions that you can walk through. And I want to encourage you not only to bring this with you each week, but if you're a parent or a grandparent, figure out a way to discuss this with your kids this week, or maybe if you could meet up with a friend or a 419 group, but discuss what God is saying in his parables. So grab one of these, throw your name in it, because I'm sure a bunch of y'all are going to lose them. And bring them with you each and every week. The parables are a popular version of Jesus' teachings. In fact, in the first three books of the Bible, what we call, or excuse me, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we call the Synoptic Gospels, a third of the teaching in the Synoptic Gospels are parables of Jesus. So Jesus used them a lot. And some of Jesus' parables have made their way into our modern vernacular today. Someone who may not be a believer in Jesus might refer to someone as a good Samaritan. That comes from the parables of Jesus. Make a reference to building on the rock. That's a reference from Jesus' parable. Maybe they will make a reference to a prodigal child. These are all common phrases, all that come from the parables of Jesus. Now, we love stories. Children love stories. Adults love stories. My kids never come and say, Father, would you tell me abstract truths about the world that make it make sense? Sometimes they do. Like when I get home from work, I don't know about you, but I usually get from work, I sit in a chair, read the paper, smoke a pipe. My kids sit at my feet and ask me wisdom of the life. <laughs> Just kidding. That never happens. <laughs> but people love stories, little kids and big kids alike. The problem with stories is sometimes you can tell a story and someone might take away something from the story that was not the point of the story. Like, for instance, I think the closest thing we have to parables in our everyday life are fairy tales, those classic stories that we share with our kids, with friends. 
But if you're not careful, you could take away the wrong lesson. Like, for instance, here's some alternate lessons you can learn from fairy tales. Like, for instance, all right, so you read Beauty and the Beast. What's the lesson? Lesson is this. You should fall in love with an ugly person because there's an off chance they'll turn attractive. That, that is definitely a lesson. Or Goldilocks and the Three Bears. You can literally get killed for stealing someone's food. That's a lesson in life. Snow White, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, all really the same lesson. Your stepmother hates you because you're so attractive. That's the lesson from those stories. Hansel and Gretel, we all know the lesson of that story. If your dad takes you on a camping trip, it's probably to abandon you. That, that's the lesson of Hansel and Gretel. Or Three Little Pigs. The only way to handle someone trying to get into your house is to murder them as quickly as possible. These are the wrong lessons from these stories. But Jesus Christ, when he told parables, he did not tell parables simply because we like stories. But he used stories to get to an intended point that he had for his parables. In fact, the word parable in the Greek, parabolo, it means to, to throw alongside. In other words, you got this truth, and we're going to throw alongside this truth a story that helps this truth to sink in. Jesus did not invent parables, but he became the master of sharing parables. In the biblical tradition, parables are really rooted in the Old Testament prophets who use parables and stories. The most famous is that of the prophet Nathan when he convicted David of a sin of having an affair with Bathsheba and then having her husband killed. He got into David's heart by sharing a story, getting to the point of saying, David, you are the man, and David was convicted of a sin. Jesus, in the same tradition of the prophets, shared parables. Now, I'm going to go ahead and warn you this. This may not be true in all 13 weeks of this series, but most of his parables are pretty harsh. You need to be prepared for that. There are some times that you hear a parable and you don't realize it, but Jesus just punched you in the face. Now, you have to read it, and then you realize he punched you in the face. But these are hard. And the parable of the sower today, or really, I should say, the parable of the soils, because I think that's the main emphasis, is no different. But what's the function of a parable? Let me give you a somewhat technical definition. I think it's very important when we think about the function. Why, why does he use parables? I'll sum it up like this. A parable is an expanded analogy used to cause hearing, enable seeing, and provoke responding to the kingdom of God. Cause hearing, enable seeing, and here's what's so important, to provoke responding. If you listen to a parable and you come away and think, oh, it's a neat story, you have missed the point of the parable. The parables of Jesus draw a line in the sand and you are often in a fork in the road having to make a decision, where am I in this parable, and am I responding? You know what impresses Jesus? It's not crowds. It is trust and obedience, following him. In this particular parable, we have the advantage of Jesus explaining to his original disciples why he spoke in parables. And then he's going to even tell them exactly what it means. So we have a wonderful chance to listen in on this conversation. Let's, let's see what Jesus said. In Matthew 13, 10 through 17. And the disciples came up and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? 
And Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, and then he quotes here Isaiah 6, you shall keep on listening, but shall not understand, and you shall keep on looking, but shall not perceive, for the hearts of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their ears, hear with their ears, or see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return, I love this, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes. Because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Disciples are asking Jesus, why, why, why do you talk to them in these parables all the time? And I love that, by the way, the disciples, they're, they're like us. Don't you know that when Jesus had all that big following and the crowds that were just amassed around the sea. Don't you know the disciples loved being Jesus' kind of right-hand right hand men? Don't you, don't you think he lo- and they loved that? I'm sure as he was teaching, the disciples were like, yeah, you get him, Jesus, amen. Y'all listen to this? Listen to this, brother. Right? Don't you imagine they're like that? And afterwards, they're like, now, Jesus, what were you talking about exactly? Why, why, do, you, why do you talk to them in parables? And then he says, it's interesting, Jesus makes this big distinction between those who are in the kingdom and those who are outside the kingdom. And he says that you as his disciples have this unique privilege of being given the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Mystery in the Bible is not like some uh, riddle that we got to figure out. Mystery is often something that in the old covenant was concealed and in the new covenant is revealed. And that's certainly what is the case with Jesus. Parables do that. Parables conceal the truth to those who don't want to hear them or listen, and they reveal truth to those who do want to hear, those who want to listen, and those who want to obey. And Jesus always knew the difference between the two. Who's really in the kingdom and who's out of the kingdom? There's one time in Matthew 12 where people come up to Jesus in the crowds and say, Jesus, where's your mother and your brothers? And they're trying to make this big deal about Jesus' blood relationship with his family. They're looking for you, Jesus. Now, Jesus loved his mom, Mary. He took care of her on the cross. Loved his brothers. His brother James would later become this huge leader in the church. But he answers them in Matthew 12, 50 with this statement. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. You know what impresses Jesus? It's obedience. And he says, to you, the disciples, has been given the privileges of knowing and hearing the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. When you read uh, Mark and Luke's version, it uses, uh, it's been given to you to know the word of God. I think we could also appropriately say, it's been given to you the privilege of knowing the gospel, this plan of redemption. You know the gospel, right? We we say it all the time, but do you, you know what I mean by the gospel? This idea that in the beginning, God created this world perfect, and Adam and Eve were given in perfect relationship as as the apple of God's eye, his creative work on display, human beings made in his image. But but Adam and Eve 
Well, they did what we would all do. They, they chose to trust in what's here instead of trusting in the one who made them. And then sin came into the world, and this world is now broken. It's why people do what they do. It's why people lie, why they cheat, why they steal. It's why you do some of the things, why I do some of the things. It's why natural disasters happen, like the earthquake that killed 1,000 people in Morocco over the weekend. It's part of a broken world. Now, if, if it was bad news, it'd be like, well, God's going, hey, y'all broke it, y'all fix it. But the good news of the gospel is that God steps into this broken world through his son, Jesus Christ, takes on humanity, dies on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven, and by his substitutionary atonement and his impending resurrection from the dead, we can have new life and eternal life. And then, not only that, but Jesus says, one day I'm coming back again to restore this world back like it was in Eden with no sin and no crying and no mourning and no pain. And that is the good news of the story of God, the gospel of God. That's the good news of the gospel. And Jesus says to his disciples, he says this, and he would say this to you if you're a disciple, it's been given to you the privilege of knowing the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's not true for everybody. He quotes Isaiah 6. We, we quote that sometimes on Mission Sundays when Isaiah goes up to the Lord and says, God, here I am, send me. <laughs> but we fail to read the whole story. Because Isaiah was sent with a message of judgment to say to Israel, the people of God, who should have known better, that, that you hear all this religious stuff and you have ears to hear, but you don't really hear. You can see it, but you don't really see it because your heart is not open. But Jesus says to the disciples in verse 16, blessed are your eyes. And in verse 17, he says, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see. Do you realize that just because you live on this side of the cross and the resurrection, you have more and know more about God and his plan of redemption and salvation than any of the Old Testament prophets did? What a privilege. But Jesus also knew that not everyone understood it that way. And as he's talked to the crowd, like I'm talking to a crowd right now, there are different groups of people in this room right now responding to the news of Jesus in different ways. And Jesus wasn't really impressed with a bunch of big crowds. He was impressed with obedience and a life that produces fruit over the long haul. So to make it clear, he interprets the parable. He doesn't always do this. In fact, most of the time he does not do this. But here he does in verse 18 through 23. Listen then to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one sown with seed beside the road. The one sown with seed on the rocky places. This is the second soil. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy Yet, he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction and persecution occurs because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one sown with seed among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word and the anxiety of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word 
and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown with seed on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a uh, hundred, some 60, some 30 times as much. Jesus, talking to the crowds, could have easily pointed to any number of directions and probably seen a farmer or a field. Most of us didn't grow up on farms, so we have to learn these agrarian images that Jesus communicated. But everyone in that day, they know exactly what he's talking about. See, in Israel, you got a bunch of rocks. A lot of y'all have been to Israel before. So finding rich soil is difficult at times. They didn't have modern technology that could just churn up the dirt like our tractors and combines might do in, in modern day. The plowing was hard work, and what you would do is you'd take a simple plow, often behind an ox or something, and it would go down the line, and it would churn up soil where you could, and then the seed, uh, the sower would take a bag of seed, and he would start to cast it onto the field. Now, you were aiming for the good soil, but sometimes it would fall over into not-so-good soil. Sometimes it would fall to the path that people walked through the fields with, and, and Jesus says, you all get what a field looks like, so let's think about this as a way of describing the way that people respond to the seed of the gospel, the word of God, the salvation in Jesus. So what he's talking about is soil, but really what he's talking about is your heart. So there are four responses based on these four soils. And as we go through these, I want you to ask yourself, which one am I in? Which one of these soils represents me? Because I guarantee you that in a crowd like this, all four of them are in this room right now. So which one is you? Number one, and these are my terms, not Jesus's, but I think they describe what he's talking about. Number one, we see a hardened heart. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one sown with seed beside the road. These fields had walking paths, so you could walk through the fields or around the fields. And I'm sure that every now and then, as the farmer sowed some seed, some of it kind of got into that path. Well, that's a hardened path, and people walk all over it, or a bird could come and steal it. And Jesus says, that's what your heart is like. You hear the things of Jesus politely. You hear the gospel. You're invited to, to walk in this. But, but honestly, it's going in one ear and out the other. You might politely listen to the kingdom of God, but you do nothing with it. And the reason is not just because you're distracted, though that may be the case. There's a whole spiritual dimension happening that you don't even know about, but God does. He says it's because Satan comes and prevents the seed from taking root. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they will not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you are lost, and some of you are, it's because you have a veil that keeps your eyes from seeing what God wants you to see. Jesus one time told Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. 
And I think that that means a couple things for us. For those of us who are trying to live on mission for Jesus, it means that our first action of living on mission is not to tell. Our first action is to get on our knees and pray. That this veil would be lifted. That Satan would have no power. Lost people are lost because they are trapped in deception by Satan and evil and their own sin. And it is a miracle. It's a miracle when anyone is saved. This last week, I heard a friend of mine, a new friend of mine, uh, he said this, I love this. He said, sometimes I hear people in church say, I got a boring testimony. You know, I didn't come from anything crazy. I got a boring testimony. He said, whenever you hear somebody say that, you need to walk up to them, politely grab them by the shoulders, and then headbutt them as hard as you can. That's what he said. There's no such thing as a boring testimony. If you're saved, it's a miracle of God, Amen that you were dead and now you are made alive in Christ from a hardened heart to a receptive heart that's bearing fruit, obeying the Lord, trusting him. But Jesus knew in the crowds, a bunch of them had a hardened heart. How about you? Is that you? Number two, a superficial heart. Verse 20 and 21. The second soil is the one sown on rocky places, the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution occurs because of the word, immediately he falls away. This is the seed where at first it seems like it's going well. I told you there's lots of rocks in Israel. And so every now and then you get a little bit of dirt on top of rocks. And it might be enough dirt where the seed could germinate and something might come out of the ground. All of a sudden you're thinking, well, it's pretty good. But because it doesn't have a firm root, when affliction comes, when the sun comes, it's scorched. It received the seed with joy, but when the hard times came, it was scorched. One of the hard things for us, particularly as Christians who were born in, the Mer- in America and most of the West, we have forgotten that for most of Christian history, if you're signing up to be a follower of Jesus, you are signing up for a life of persecution, hardship. And Jesus was constantly preparing his, his disciples to pay the cost of discipleship. Salvation in Christ is free, but discipleship is very costly. It costs you everything. But the superficial heart is the one that receives it with joy, but time proves that it's not really genuine. I remember being with a close family friend of ours just a number of years ago who had just been served divorce papers from his wife. He came over to our house. It was late at night, and he was weeping and crying and asking all the the why questions. We talked a little bit as a marriage. We talked about God, God's love for him, and tried to share the gospel with him. And he said, I need God. I need Jesus. I, I I need that in my life. And I remember just sitting there in our apartment office on the floor. He's weeping, crying, and just him praying, oh, God, save me, Jesus. I believe in you. God, save me. And it was this just, just incredible moment. He's not a believer today. He didn't walk with Jesus. Saw very little fruit, if any. In fact, most of the time he ridicules Christians today. He's a second soul. He's a superficial counterfeit, like a Rolex that ticks. Or how about an old reference? He's like a Milli Vanilli Christian, counterfeit. 
Christian. There's a reference for you, Millie Vanilli. I wonder if a lot of y'all are like that. You have a superficial heart. I think that's a message that the, the church today needs to hear. Receiving the gospel immediately with joy is not proof in and of itself that you are genuinely saved. Are you bearing fruit over time? Number three, third soil, probably the most deceptive of the four, is a religious heart. The word religion is not bad. Sometimes it's used in a very good way, like in James. But I'm using it here pejoratively. By religious, I mean someone who does religious things and appreciates the value of religion, but has missed Jesus. And Jesus says of this third soil person in verse 22, he says, the one sown with seed among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, and the anxiety of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. It's someone with a double heart, a double-minded heart. It's like what we talked about a few weeks ago. Jesus said, I'll spit you out of my mouth because you're neither hot nor cold. Someone with a divided heart. It's like the young woman who had a divided heart and there was this young man that was trying to woo her and Say, I, I, I love you. I, I know I don't, I love you even though I, I know I don't have a mansion like Johnny Brown does. I love you even though I, I don't have the money like Johnny Brown does. I, I love you even though I'm not as good looking as Johnny Brown does. And she looked at him and said, I, I love you too. But tell me more about Johnny Brown. <laughs> a divided heart. Or how many people today have a divided heart? You appreciate religion. But fruit has been choked out by your love for this world. Paul said this in 2 Timothy from a jail cell. He's writing to Timothy. This, this phrase has always haunted me. 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 11. Make every effort to come to me soon for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. That phrase, having loved this present world. In that, that book I mentioned, The Great Dechurching, one of the keys it talks about as to why that's the case is the failure of parents and grandparents to pass on the things of the gospel to their kids. Now, I don't say that to hump a bunch of guilt on you, because some of you have done a marvelous job and your kids still are not walking with the Lord. But there's a lot of kids, let's be honest, they get to a certain age, they can drive and church just, I mean, it's okay. But I'd rather spend my time on my travel baseball team or my volleyball team. I'd rather spend my time with my buddies over the weekend. You know, we're traveling. We got the lake house. I got the boat. I got the, we just start doing other stuff. It's not like I'm not into Jesus. I mean, I like religion. Religion's good. You know, one day I'll get back to that. And, and the worst part is not just the unholy habits of those kids, but it's parents who reinforce those unholy habits. And one day, one day, though, I mean, their kids, they'll take Jesus seriously. Most of the time, they don't. Now, being in church is not the magic silver bullet to fix everything. But being in and a part of the body of Christ is so much of what, it, what is required to grow in the things of God. A lot of people here, a lot of you have a religious heart, third soil. Well, let's get to the last one. 
Number four, we'll call it a reproducing heart. Verse 23, this is the goal. The one sown with seed on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some 100, some 60, some 30 times as much. Don't, don't get the fixated what those numbers mean exactly. He's just saying this is the kind of plant that it grows up and it bears fruit over time. And this is what God wants in your life. Not only that you receive the gospel with joy, but that the gospel takes root in your heart and the Holy Spirit moves in your life and you grow and become more like Christ. Now, are you going to lapse into sin? Of course, all of us do. None of us are perfect. We all still need the gospel and the grace of Jesus, no matter how long we live. But the proof is in over time, are you looking more like Jesus and bearing fruit that comes from Jesus? That is what impresses Jesus. Not the crowds. What impresses Jesus is trust and obedience. And we are to be like the tree in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night, I love this image. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. That's the goal. Like, like trees beside streams of living water producing fruit in its season. That's what Jesus longs for, for you to have a reproducing heart in the things of God. So where do you stand today? Where do you stand today? It's interesting that we talk about four soils, but there's really just two. There's really just two heart conditions. There's the receptive heart and the unreceptive heart. Now, the unreceptive heart has three versions of itself, first, second, third soil, but there's only one that truly produces lasting fruit. Is that where you are today? I didn't ask, are you perfect? I didn't ask, we have seasons where you might lapse into some old behaviors and patterns. We all go through that. But most of the believers who are truly abiding in Jesus don't stay there very long. I told you this is a harsh message, but when I, when I hear this parable, it fills me with two great emotions. The first is hope. You might go, what? What's hopeful about that? What's hopeful about that is the fact that the seed, the gospel, the kingdom is always advancing. When we see the fruit, when we don't see the fruit, God is always at work. God is moving in so many powerful ways. In this world, God's moving in powerful ways in this church, and we see it all the time. But even when we don't see it, we know and trust that the kingdom of God is advancing because God is the sower and the seed is the gospel and the gospel always works. So we have hope and we preach Christ to a lost and dying world because we know that God desires and God longs for and God is working in the hearts of people. There's so much hope in a passage like this. But there's also horror. And the horror is that I know and you know so many people that think they're in 
but they're really out. And this passage is drawing a line in the sand saying, where are you? Where are you? And that's my question to you. Where are you? What soil best describes your heart? I wonder if today is the day of salvation for somebody in this house. Or if today is the day where someone moves from death to life and the veil is lifted and for the first time in your life you see the light of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And the Holy Spirit comes into your life and changes you and forgives you and overwhelms you and you start to grow and your wants change and your likes change and, and your decisions change, not because you decide to be a good person, but because for the first time you've experienced the freedom and forgiveness that only comes through Jesus. You don't earn your way into the fourth soil. You are given the fourth soil as a free gift of the grace of God in Jesus. And I wonder how many of you today need to repent of your sin, stop faking religion, stop living in your sin, and put your trust and hope in Jesus. And you could write down that on September the 10th, 2023, is the day I finally gave my life to Jesus. If that's something you need to do, I'd love to pray with you right now. Could we all just bow our heads, just close our eyes, Father, this is a holy moment because you have spoken to us through your word in this parable. And as we talked about, your parables always demand a response. Lord, I pray that there's someone today who is given eternal life because they surrender their life to you and say, Jesus, forgive me and fulfill me. God, would you do a miracle? Father, I pray for those of us who would say, I'm a fourth soil person. God, would we actually live like it? And would we have a burden for so many who are blinded by the God of this world? God, you're doing a great work. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this parable. Now convict us, teach us, rebuke us, and encourage us with the mysteries of the kingdom of God. It's those mysteries that we sing back to you. In Jesus' name we pray and we now sing. Amen.